promise to Abraham. The sons Ishmael and Isaac. The birth of covenants. Every one of these events is an announcement, a declaration of who God is and how he treats his people. As the word of God has stood the test of time, these records are still a revelation. Hey, good morning. Uh, you, you know, you don't have the opportunity like I do. This is my second service, and I've already had the opportunity to worship, and, and it was a sweet spirit in first service. I feel the same here in second, and uh, I think we're going to all enjoy and appreciate God's word today for the text we're in. And so I'm going to ask you to just jump right in uh, to Genesis chapter 22. That's where we're going to be today. And if you're new, uh, let me introduce myself. I'm Tony. I'm pastor here at LEFC. And uh, we have been in a series out of the book of Genesis since the beginning of the fall. And uh, we believe that Genesis, which is the beginning of the scriptures, helps us understand and gives us context to why we need Jesus and, and to who Jesus is, why he came and died on a cross and uh, resurrected on the third day, and why the God of the universe, the creator God, would ever create such a plan. And these things are all revealed uh, in, in the text of Genesis and help us understand God's heart. And so we're going to be there today uh, where we're going to be looking at God's heart for uh, people and the way he interacts and how he wants to strengthen us. Last week, uh, we asked a couple questions in regards to the text because we had to come to a place of deciding, do we truly believe that God changes? Does God actually change his plans? Is there ever a point where God is surprised or that new information comes that he would shift in his plans? And so the basic questions are, does God change? And if he does or he doesn't, which we looked last week, and you'll see in scripture that God is unchanging. He knows everything. There's not a beginning of his knowledge. His plans are forever established. We looked at all the scriptures that build that picture, which then creates a new question. Then why even pray? Why even pray? If God is unchanging and his plans are firmly established, I think you would, it would be really important that if those questions are something you're wrestling with, go back and listen to the sermon from last week and, and how we learn from the situation between uh, Abraham and God when Abraham was pleading with God in regards to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I believe it's an important question to ask. Why pray if God is unchanging and his plans are firmly established? Uh, and so one key piece to that is that we discover that God is aligning our hearts in prayer to his heart and aligning our thoughts to his thoughts. Today, we are going to be getting into a question about is temptation or testing ever coming from God? And if so, 
What is he trying to accomplish? And so Genesis chapter 22, first 19 verses will give us a context by where we learn quite a bit about God and how he engages mankind with tests. And so here we go, verse one of Genesis chapter 22. So sometime later, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set off for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in a distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they had reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a the thicket he caught, saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. All right, so... As we learned last week, it's a little different for us to think of a, these engagements between a human being and God and call it prayer. Because for us, we think of a posture where we're, we're kneeling down or we're, we're, we're uh, bowing our heads or we're folding our hands and, and we're talking to God and we're praying because prayer is by definition is communication between us and God. But in these encounters where God is doing a direct communication there is prayer going on. It is communication between man and God and God and man. And as we discussed last week, this communication will create alignment between God's heart and God's thoughts and man's heart 
and man's thoughts to God's heart and man's and God's thoughts. And so with this alignment uh, going on in this prayer, there are some things that happen here that I want to call out first before we start taking the lessons from this. First of all, God does paint some pictures here that forecast something that's going to happen later. There's some foreshadowing going on that for those of us that are on this side of the cross, we can fully appreciate. And the first foreshadowing I want to call out from this text is that the cost of love can be quite significant. It was Jesus who said, is there any greater love than this than a human being would lay down their life for another? There is no greater example of love than for one to give up their life to another, especially one who can will for that, to do that for another. And so this foreshadowing of cost of love happens here when you see that his one son, his only son, was going to be the one by which he would sacrifice for the sake of love for God. Now, the foreshadowing in this is pretty significant because what you see in verse 2 and verse 12 and verse 16 is the same pattern. Your son, your only son, and in verse 2, whom you love, but in verses 12 and 16, it would say your son, your only son, your son, and your only son. Is this conjuring up some knowledge about something that is said later that could be foreshadowed? Consider John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So there is a pattern here that is being foreshadowed that there is something significant about giving up your son, your only son, for the sake of love for another. Because Abraham was about to go through this as a part of the connection between him and God, there is clearly an alignment of understanding for God's heart because God already knows he is going to do the same and he will go to the fullest end of that story where his one and only son does indeed is indeed sacrificed for the sins of the world. So you had this foreshadowing of the cost of love, his son, his only son. We also see this idea of offering, this burnt offering, which burnt offerings were often used as a means of gratitude, of acknowledgement of the harvest or, or other things where it's like you wanna show God that you realize the blessings come from him. It is also true that burnt offerings were used as restorative or as a repayment for or purification of some kind of error or sin or defilement that had happened. So burnt offerings have a big picture, but it's clearly a point, burnt offerings, between where man is then conveying something deep from their heart towards God. And so this burnt offering that is going to happen where the son was part of this, this is an offering where we're saying, I acknowledge that all blessings come from God or that there is a restoration that is happening. So the second foreshadowing that's significant in the story that, that communicates something that is yet to come is the hill itself. He says, I want you to go to Moriah. So Moriah would have been known as a regional place 
uh, where a primary hill that has many peaks on it. Uh, and so he knew where it was and it was about 50 miles away and it would take about three days journey to get there. So he knows about this hill. He goes there and then it says that God will show him the exact place on that hill uh, where he wants him uh, to do this burnt offering. And so what is significant about Moriah is that Moriah today is Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits on that hill and the high point of Moriah, which would be called Mount Moriah, would be the place where David would buy the threshing floor and then provide the resources for his son Solomon to build the temple. So the place of worship was going, that God was going to establish with his name was going to be built later in the spot that he's going to show Abraham and Isaac, this is where I want you to do this sacrifice, this burnt offering between you and me. And so that's a pretty significant foreshadowing. But if you haven't thought about this more fully, then that means there's a third thing that, that's pretty significant in this. And that is that the ultimate sacrifice that was going to happen, the Lamb of God, the Son, the only Son, would also be sacrificed on that very hill. Now there were, again, there were multiple points on top of Moriah. And so we have the high point where the Temple Mount would be and where this likely happened, where uh, Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac. But about a 19 minute walk away, I Googled this just to look it up. But 19 minute walk away is another point on Moriah called Golgotha, Calvary, the place of great sacrifice. Now, you might say, I thought it was even closer because the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is an option for where, again, where the burial and the sacrifice could have happened. Uh, but there's a lot of things that point that that's, out, not, that's in the city and that it was likely outside of the city where this happened. So the garden tomb, and there is a rock face that looks like that of a skull that is outside the walls. That's only about 19 minute walk again from the Temple Mount to that spot. Regardless, it's all on the Mount of Moriah. So you have this moment where God says, okay, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, to a place I will show you. And God this whole time knows what's gonna happen on that mount for time to come. And so then he goes to this place and it ends up being a place again where worship is going to happen for generations and then the all-time sacrifice is going to happen. And by the way, when Christ returns, he will appear first at Moriah from over the Mount of Olives. And so you have all this built within the story and then it just makes you realize God is connecting some dots and Abraham is the first to experience it. He is going to feel what it feels like to have to offer a son, your only son, sacrificially for the sake of love. So now let's get into the story a little bit. So you got all that foreshadowing that happens. And in verse, 20, in verse one of chapter 22, it begins with the statement that sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, testing 
seems like a pretty strong thing for God to do with some human being. So is God putting something out there that Abraham is going to fail at? Is that what God's trying to accomplish? Is God trying to prove something to Abraham? Is he trying to show where Abraham's weak? What's the heart of God going on here? Well, I need to kind of define some terms here, lest we project upon God inappropriately. If God's desire was to see Abraham fail, then God is actually tempting Abraham, not testing him. So let me explain what I mean there. So one of my favorite commentarians is Warren Wearsby. I've quoted him before, but he says this to define the difference between temptations and testing. Temptations are meant to draw out the worst in us. Whereas trials, because he's using a different translation, whereas trials or tests are meant to draw out the best in us. So how biblical can we trust that statement? Where temptations are meant to cause us harm or to cause us to fail, and tests are meant to actually cause us to stand stronger and to do better and to have new tools in the toolbox by which we can do life. Well, consider James. He actually takes on these two terms, testing and trials, uh, testing and trials versus that of temptation. So look at verses two and three of James one. It'll be on the screen. It says this, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials or tests of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or produces strength, produces the knowledge necessary to make it through something difficult. So that's what tests are meant to do. They're provided to give you strength so that you can go through the next trial and test with greater strength. Then he says in verse 13 of James chapter one, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. In other words, temptation is meant to cause you to do evil or to cause you to fail morally. And so, and we know from the rest of the context around verse 13 that temptations are often birthed by our own flesh. It's for want, it's for self-gratification, and it's to defy God and be reliant upon yourself. And so to say that God would tempt you to, to cause you to want to do evil and to actually fail would be contrary to the nature of God. We know from Hebrews chapter 12 that we're to consider all the hardships of life as means by which God will strengthen us. You see it here from the book of James that again, we're to take these trials or these tests of all various kinds to, to receive them as tests that will cause our faith to get stronger. Now let me kind of compare just in the natural. Uh, pretty much I would guess that all of us here have taken a test. We've been educated. And I'm sure some of you still look back on your education and presume that some teacher gave you that test and wrote the test in such a way to cause you and to wish you to fail. All right, are there teachers in the room? Are you willing to hold your hand up and say, yes, I'm a teacher? Okay, there we go. Now, 
is there a desire to want to see your pupils, your students to actually fail? No, the test is given to help you draw back, to force you to go back, receive the content you've already been taught, to recall it so it stays with you so that you can build upon it. When I consider some of my beginning tests in my college years, my undergrad years, when I take, think about some of the tests I was given then, they helped cement certain things theologically and biblically that later tests would help me to draw upon. And I would have never been able to pass the later tests if I hadn't learned and succeeded through the earlier tests. Is this making sense? So now let's apply it back to the spiritual. In the same way, God takes us through multiple trials in our life. Each one is educating us on knowledge about God and how God operates in the midst of our trials and reminds us of things that we learn about God, that his promises are always true. His character never wanes so that we can have confidence to go through the next trial. And it builds one upon another. So this test of Abraham was not the first test that Abraham had ever received from God. Think about it. We've already studied that he, is, he was originally in a land that was not Israel. It was outside of that land. And he was told for him to go to this land he's never been to before and to be this small group of people amongst some much bigger groups of people, therefore being vulnerable and totally relying upon safety and, and, and being able to survive by the trust in God's provision. He was obedient and he went. And he was told he's gonna become a great nation. When he arrived in the land, he was 50 years old. Okay, so we're going back, understanding the tests and the trials, okay? At age 75, he has a little hiccup because it's been 25 years. He's always like, he takes things into his own hands. He tries to create a new path by this through Hagar, Ishmael comes. So, you know, you got some hiccups going on a little bit later into this. And then at 100 years of age, finally, God provides the son of promise. Think about this, a 50 year wait. Is there not a test in this? Many tests in this, okay? So many tests have already happened. And each time, what did Abraham learn? If God sends me, wherever he goes, even if I don't see how he's gonna sustain me, I can trust that God will provide. Even if I can't see it uh, from, from where I stand now, I know God will provide. And we know that God does not change. He doesn't change his orders. He doesn't change his plans. And Abraham's already learned all those things. So he draws upon that in this moment. And in Genesis 22, when it says God tested him and said, I want you to go to a mountain I will show you. I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, and you're going to uh, do this in, according to my command, Abraham's response was, okay, let's go. And the next morning, first thing, he does it. He goes. So in this, you have to ask yourself, why this test? If there is already a lot of tests that had happened that caused Abraham to grow in his understanding of God and to grow in his trust to have the strength to be able to handle it, he would have never passed this test years before. 
And so now at this point, God asks this of him. And you have to ask yourself, why? Well, think about this. If at age 100 for Abraham and age 91 for Sarah, that they have this child that comes to him, that God says, I'm going to make a great nation out of. Isn't it possible that that child becomes the greatest possession that they have? Yes, absolutely so. And there's not necessarily sin in that statement. But if that possession, that greatest possession here on this earth becomes greater than the gift giver themselves, does that become a problem? Yes. Because the gift, Isaac, who had become very precious in their eyes, that he came at that ripe old age of 191, if he had become more valuable to them than God himself, they had an idol. Because anything that becomes more valuable than God is an idol. Let's test this for a moment. So if this is the most greatest possession for Abraham, that this would be the greatest test of his faith. Are you truly putting all things in my hands, Abraham? If God was to ask one thing of you to test you for your faith, what might that one thing be? Do you realize what I'm asking of you right now? You have to really then begin to ask, what is the most precious thing I have in my life that I could even say with my mouth is a gift from God? But has that gift become so important to me that if God asked for the gift back, I would white knuckle the gift? No, God, you can't have this, this gift back. You gave it to me. You can't have it back. See, there is the test. Now, when I consider that all things that I find as blessings on this earth are gifts from God, then this idol can be in many different faces. I mean, think about it. Our provisions could become idols. Our careers, our houses, our clothes, our, our, our food, the things we drive can become idols. Our passions can become idols. The things we enjoy doing for leisure, our skills, our successes can become idols. Our desire for adrenaline to be pumping through our veins, even something like that that is God-designed and can be a good thing, a blessing, can become more important than the gift giver. But I think the most difficult ones to avoid idolatry with is our family, our parents, our spouses, our children. I think one of the greatest tests of many of us is that when we've got things that we know God would want to do in our families, and yet we, for the sake of happiness for our kids, make different decisions that we know isn't exactly honoring towards God. But we esteem our children to a fault. Or our spouses. Or perhaps our parents. So if God asked for that one thing that's become so precious in your life, what would that one thing be? Can you acknowledge that that was a gift from God? And if the gift giver gave it to you and he said, but I want it back, would you be willing to release that gift back?
Abraham didn't seem to struggle with this. His immediate departure, 50-mile hike, three-day journey, seemed to be right in step. No processing of this with Sarah, probably a good idea. But I'm thinking that, you know, it's like, it's best not to, if you know you have a clear directive from God, to not like ponder it. It's good to just go. Because I think in the pondering, you might get to a place of fear or entitlement or other things. And it will keep you from going. But he just went. And then in verse five, as they've gone on the journey and they're in their final day of the journey, he, he can see the Moriah from afar and he tells the servants to stay in that spot and says, Isaac and I will go to that mountain and we will be back. So there's already something being forecasted that Abraham has a lot going on up here. I mean, two days of walking, trying to understand why would God ask me to do this? But his trust of God, what he's learned about God, that God's promises are good. So Isaac's supposed to be a father of a great nation. God said it, so it's gonna happen. God's promises are good. His character is good. He wouldn't condone child sacrificing like the pagan religions do. So he's processing this. So what is God doing in this? So he already says, we will be back. Verse eight, Isaac's now doing some pondering. Okay, we got the wood, check. Fire, check. Lamb. I can't check that box. Where's the lamb? You see, again, burnt offerings were, were meant to have some kind of animal sacrificed on them. And it was based on often the means of the individual, but certainly the most precious of all the animals for sacrifice was a lamb, a perfect lamb. They didn't have it. So when he asked his father, what about the lamb? He says, God will provide. So then Isaac's got to deal with that. When the moment comes, they've built the altar, and now his father begins to tie him up. And then his father picks him up and puts him on that altar. I mean, we don't get the rest of the story of how this affected Isaac for the rest of his life. But what we do know is that God showed up in that moment and provided a ram. Because later, he would provide the lamb. So on that hill, you have a ram's provision. And so as he's about to strike Isaac, that ram is provided, God's, the sacrifice happens, God's character is intact, his plans are intact, his, his, his total uh, test of Abraham has been fulfilled, Abraham has now shown he has strength, he is operating as God had intended. But you have to be questioning, what was going through Abraham's mind that God would ask him to do something like this, this test? And we're given a little bit of insight in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. It'll be on the screen. It says this, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises all that God had told him was about to sacrifice his one and only son. And even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So those of you that are very familiar with scripture, 
Where is the term resurrect and resurrection spoken before this moment? It's not. God has never raised somebody from the dead in the manner that this is being talked about. The concept of resurrection isn't there yet. But when you're left with, I know what God's character looks like. And I know what his promises are. So this decision to go and sacrifice Isaac, the only thing he can come to was something he'd never seen or spoken of before was that God must be raising him from the dead. That's how far Abraham had come in his understanding of God's character and God's commitment to his promises because that's the only way where a sacrifice of Isaac would be consistent with God's character is that resurrection would happen. What would it be like if your faith and my faith was that strong? Where when God would ask you to do something that seems so difficult to comprehend and understand, that you would reason something you've never seen before, but it's consistent with his character and his promises. Now, coming back to the book of Hebrews chapter 12, it says in that hardship, we're supposed to endure it as being tests or disciplines from the Lord. It's getting us stronger. James speaks that, that through all types of trials and testings, that we should see that as it's a, a creating a perseverant faith. So I speak to you now, and I wonder, what tests or trials might you be going through right now? Or what tests or trials have you gone through that has helped form you and shape you and strengthen your faith? You see, what we have here is that God has just done something that took Abraham, whose faith had been on a journey and growing quite significantly, and now it has reached almost perfection. That something so difficult, that which is most precious, he was willing out of love for God to release because he trusted in God's character and God's promises. When I consider in my own faith journey the many tests that I've experienced, all of them teach me a little bit more about God's heart and about my own. Sometimes I don't like what I see in my heart when I go through the test, but then I keep seeing over and over through every test, God's promises are sure and true, and God's character, thank God, God's character does not change. When I go back and I look at all those tests, there are four that I would say were significant in shaping me. And all of them have happened in the last 25 years. The first one being when my daughter was born. You know about the story, some of you. But I've never told you the details of that story. And that's not for now either. But when you release a child into a surgeon's arms... And they're an infant. And you do it repeatedly. Only knowing that the infant is experiencing pain and suffering each time. They're very vulnerable and you don't know how they're going to respond to all the things being done to them. Let me tell you, 
When you pray over that child and every time the word comes back that this is the worst case scenario. In fact, the doctor kept saying 98% of the time, this is what we'll discover. Our daughter kept being the 2%. It became a test of our faith because we had prayed over her. We had anointed her with oil with the elders being involved. We had done everything right in the way we had approached how we've nurtured her and how we even approached the pregnancy only to see these worst case scenarios in regards to her personal health continuing to be realized. It was a testing of my faith. Then God, during that same period of time, God says, I want you to leave the comforts of the church that is taking care of you during that time and to go across the river to the West Shore. Now, that may seem no big deal when we're talking about the Susquehanna. But let me tell you, when you're in the midst of a great trial and you're finding that God is supporting you through the church and you're being upheld by that church and then God says, oh, by the way, I want you to also leave that church and go to a church that they don't know your journey. It felt extremely difficult and daunting. It was a test. And to do so, if you were to mark all the reasons why you should leave one church to go serve at another, it did, not make, it did not check the boxes. In fact, it was humanly stupid to make the decision. Then I came to a different test when God was calling us to come here. In this case, it wasn't about how we desire very much to come here and we believe God was calling us here. The challenge is, is we couldn't control that. And what if God did not? It was a testing of my faith, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they, they were in the fiery furnace, they were going to the fiery furnace, and they said, even if God, we believe God will rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we will still not bend the knee. This was the test of my faith. Am I okay when I feel a desire for something and I feel called to something, even if God doesn't, am I okay with God? And then, the most recent test would have been in 2017. For those of you that have been around our church a while, you remember that was the year where we took a huge step of faith for the church, where we were going to expand this facility and this property. That meeting that was faithful for, in a good way for our elders was in January. And then within a month of that, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. I've been told multiple times by multiple pastors that building a church can be so difficult because people will speak what they don't like about it and people will speak what they do like about it and then you have to deal with too much praise and then rejection all together. And then all the while, it's going to have all kinds of twists and turns where you have to trust by faith and you'll be exhausted when it's done. So I had had all that counsel going into it. And then God decides to give cancer to my wife. Testing on my faith. What I've learned through all the tests is that God's character does not change. Thank God. What I've learned is that his promises are indeed true and are trustworthy. Praise God. 
And that by that, that as I go through other trials or I walk other people through trials, I can point to the unchanging God whose character is good and that his plans and provision will not fail them. And I can speak out of personal experience. So what does it mean to pass the test with God? If all tests continue to build upon another and they're all to bring strength out of us, to give us perseverance as scripture says, that God's not wanting us to fail but to actually succeed and it's for our benefit that we go through these trials and these difficulties and these tests, then how do we pass the test? Because Abraham clearly did. So let's look at his life as a model or a roadmap for passing the test of faith. Knowing that the trials you and I face are all very different. Number one, when you're in the midst of the storm of, a life, of, the, of life and you're in a trial or a great test of faith, always account for God. What does God have to say about? What are his promises? What character traits about him do you need to cling to in the midst of this? Because often when you're in the midst or the crucible of a trial, you'll begin to project upon God doubts. And that's where you need to re-educate yourself on what the truths are. Account for God. And secondly, if there are clear action points you can do to be obedient in the situation, do them. Don't cut corners. Don't do as Abraham did. If there's an opportunity to obey, obey and obey quickly. Don't consider if you want to obey. Just go and do and entrust yourself to his provision. Which leads to number three. You have to believe, even if it seems like the failure of the storm is likely, you have to trust that God will provide. God will provide whatever is needed to go through that test, whatever's needed for the next test, God will provide. And then here's one that I think isn't so much about you as it is about others. I think in learning from Abraham, look what happened when God provided the ram and he was able to create a sacrifice that is not his son. There's a replacement, there's a provision what did he do? He named the hill. He named the hill. God provides. Jehovah Jireh. God provides. And then it says that from that time on, that people will look at that hill and they know that the Lord will provide. The hill stands as a testimony to the nation of Israel and all the nations that when you entrust yourself to God and him and his provisions, God will provide and you know that he will always provide. So name the hill and identify and declare God's provision because Abraham named the hill that when David bought the hill from the Jebusites, and he put upon that hill the, the, this marking spot that's gonna be where Solomon gets to build the temple, that this hill was already known as God's provision, and he will provide. But the, the nation of Israel was still longing for when the Messiah would come, the great provision of God. They couldn't even foresee that he was actually gonna be the living lamb of God. And on that hill, the Lord will provide 
and he did. We get to look back and see that the lamb came and he came and he undid all the curses of sin upon those who by faith trust in God's provision of Jesus. When we name the trials after we've gone through them and we identify what God taught us, then it gives us opportunity to teach our children and our friends or our extended family a little bit more about God. As I look back and I look at the four trials I mentioned, I look at the trial of my daughter Kira as the journey to healing sometimes is quite long. It took years for us to see it, but we were able to see it and acknowledge God healed our daughter. And I could also label that journey and name that hill as unexpected joys. Unexpected joys came in the journey. I can tell you that the journey from Hershey to West Shore, that I learned that even though it made no human sense to make that move, especially when we did it, that God's way is always better. I learned in the 11 years of being at that church that, that, that even though I had no idea what was gonna happen, that after 11 years I could see, now I understand why God sent us and when he did it. God's way is better. And then I would say in my journey to LAFC that it's the same as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that even if he doesn't give me what I think he's gonna give me, I'm okay with that. I trust him. And then I would say, the cancer journey with my wife, we experienced more grace in that season than I've experienced in any other season of my life. And when you experience grace and then you see other people going through the same journey, what do you wanna do? You wanna pay the grace forward. It's paying grace forward. You realize that these journeys are common to all of us and we've had people close to us experiencing that, that horrific disease called cancer. And then when you realize that God can give grace even in those journeys, of course you wanna walk alongside those who are not feeling it yet. God provides. So what would you name your hills? The hills where you've seen God take you through the test and the fire. What do you think God's teaching you now if you're in the midst of the test and the trial? What would you name it? What do you, th what do you think God may do? The key thing is, if we rely on our own understanding, we will not take the next step in the trial. It'll be too daunting, too fearful. But when we trust in the character and the promises of God and our eyes fixed on him, by grace, we can take the next step. Let's pray. So Lord, I don't know what the trials are represented in this room and I don't know how they would name the current ones or the last ones. But God, would we for the sake of giving glory to you and acknowledging you as the great provider through the lamb, Jesus Christ, would you please stir in our hearts and give us anew a perspective of what you've been teaching us and how you've been building us up so that we can stand with perseverance through the storms. So I pray for those who are in the midst of the storms that you would encourage them, lift up their eyes, lift up their countenance even now, that they discover there is a good God that is leading the way and he will provide. Jesus, thank you for being the only son, the son, that became the Lamb of God, by which we can have hope. You truly are the greatest provision upon the history of mankind. 
Thank you, Jesus, and we honor you now. Amen. Would you stand, please? Let's sing of the provision of the Lamb of God. Let's rest in who he is.
I don't know a single student in life that's ever said, I'm so looking forward to finals week. Or that the test is coming and they're elated as if it's Christmas morning. Nor do any of us get excited about God seeing that you're ready for the next test. It's just true. But yet God says, through the test, it will strengthen you. And it will reveal more about you and your need for God and God and his character and his promises. And it's gonna prepare you for what lies next. And so I recognize that some of you are in the midst of those trials and testings right now. And I know that, that it's not easy and it's simple to speak of things out of the fact. I gave you four stories. I'm not in the midst of those. I, I draw from them now but you are maybe not able to draw from something right now because you're in the throes of it. My encouragement to you is to go on a journey to know God's promises and know God's heart and then to apply his character, not yours, to the situation. We have people that'll be in the encounter room that would be glad to pray with you, to talk with you. I'll also be up front. We recognize these are difficult subjects, but it's also true whether you're in the test or not, you probably know somebody who is. And maybe God can use some of the strength from the testings you've received to be a grace to somebody else paying it forward. So let's be mindful of God's character, mindful of his desire and his promises to see them fulfilled in us, that we can be the light to those who are struggling in the midst of the storm. Amen? Go and be blessed being used of God in his grace.